The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the latest updates from the battlefront, discuss the military concept of risk and how you calculate it, and we get the view of the conflict from Japan. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 1st of July, day 128. And today, I'm joined by The Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, assistant foreign editor, Venetia Rainey, and assistant comment editor, Francis Dirtley. As always, I started by asking Dom and Venetia for news from the front lines across Ukraine. So I'd say the main update today is these strikes that we've had around Odessa um, in the south. So we had two strikes overnight that have killed at least 19 people. One was on a nine-storey apartment block and the other was on a holiday resort. Among the dead are two children. So quite a heavy death toll, even among all the grimness of the Ukraine war. Um, There are about 38 people injured, including six more children and a pregnant woman. Apparently the rescuers are still digging through rubble, but are starting to lose hope of finding any more survivors. The strikes happened in the middle of the night. That's why the casualty rates are quite high. The strike on the apartment building happened at 1am, for example. Um, Ukraine has said that there were no military targets in the area, that this was purely residential, these were all civilians. Russia, of course, has come back and said, we don't strike civilian targets, we would never dream of doing such a thing. It's interesting because, obviously, we had the withdrawal from Snake Island yesterday, which I'm sure Don will be talking um, more about. And it just shows that the south of Ukraine and the Black Sea is still very much not safe from the Russians. You know, they may have withdrawn from Snake Island, and that is a victory for Ukraine in some way. But Russian missiles can still strike over very long distances and with very with, with deadly effects. Um, so, yeah, that's that's an important update from the ground today. Thank you, Venetia. Um, Dom, do you want to add to that at all? I would, uh, yeah, I'd just say that that in response, the Ukrainian Defence Ministry have said that the, the missiles that were fired in Odessa last night were the same uh, missiles that they say uh, hit the the shopping mall the other day, as we saw in the east of the country. And they've labelled, uh, they've said um, that Russia is a, is a terrorist state, and um, uh, and and this is this is clear evidence that uh, uh, that they're a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, uh, as Venetia said, so Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, came back and, and just said, I would like to remind you of the president's words that the Russian armed forces do not work with civilian targets, i.e. do not do not hit civilian targets. So just just underlines what Venetia was saying. That they're, just, they're just brazen this stuff out. Um, and I think what this shows is that, that this is all they've got. I mean, they extraordinarily debatable as to whether or not they'd ever be able to justify... I mean, sorry, what I'm saying is it's not it's not part of some wider attack. What is the point of firing heavy ordnance like this if it's not part of some wider effort? This is just petulance. This is it comes a day after the Snake Island retreat. And that was played out widely across the the, the international press, as as we covered as, as well. And so this is this is what what you see. This is what Russia can do. All, all they all they're able to do is deny 
that, there's Mr. Peskov, and they grind on in the east, and then they chuck heavy ordnance around just to, to well, just because they can. I don't know what the end state is there. They 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 do not have any care for where these things are landing. They're not um, they're not planning these these attacks as part of some wider effort. So they're just it's just it's petulance, and it's all they can do. And uh, as we've mentioned before, if that speaks to what the Russian forces are capable of, i.e. almost no movement at all on the ground, except at very, very high cost, and chuck a lot of air, air ordnance through the air, then that is not a, a fully swept up 21st century military. It, it speaks of a, of a wider weakness, but I won't, won't go on any further there. No, thank you, Dom, and thank you, Venetia. Um, for Dom and Venetia, what else is happening in Ukraine over the past 24 hours, uh, maybe away from the south? Well, there's a lot of, a lot of other things happening. So in the east, as I say, the grinding progress around Lysychansk is still, is still going on. The Russian armed forces seem to have taken a village to the northwest of the city. There, <clears throat> excuse me, there is intense fighting in the, uh, in, on the high ground around the Lysychansk oil refinery. Uh, as, as we've mentioned before, likely that Lysychansk will fall to the Russian armed forces and that will then complete the capture of the whole of the Luhansk Oblast. Still a long way to go to take the whole Donbass. And, uh, and as we've mentioned before, Ukraine seems to have been fighting in this area that has very limited strategic value. I mean, very, very limited strategic value, limited operational value, to be perfectly honest. It doesn't do an awful lot for the, for the fight in the, in the Donbass. Um, but what it does do is, is bleed the Russian armed forces and, and, and make them use up what very limited uh, men and material they, they have left. So likely that, that Ukraine will cede the rest of Lysychansk probably over the weekend. And, um, and then Russia will claim, claim victory in, in Luhansk. That's fine. Let them do that. Yep. Good luck to them. Plant your flag on the rubble. Say it's all, all gone swimmingly well. And then we'll see what they do. We'll see if they, if they culminate, which is the, the military term means you're not on the retreat, but you're not able to conduct any more offensive action. You're just, just exhausted. Your forces are exhausted and just able to stay where they are. I think that's what we're going to see. I don't expect any big big sort of breakout into the, into the, the, the west of, uh, of listed chance, but, but that will, we will see that next week. Um, elsewhere, Bulgaria has expelled a lot of Russian diplomats for spying, they say. Uh, they spelled, expelled 70. And in, in return for that, Russia threatened to... Um, severed diplomatic ties. Uh, the NATO NATO spokesperson has said Bulgaria's decision to expel 70 Russian personnel as foreign agents is a sovereign decision which must be respected. NATO allies strongly condemn Russia's long-standing pattern of coercive behaviour, attempts to interfere in our democratic processes and institutions and to target the security of our citizens. We stand in solidarity with our, with our ally Bulgaria. So very strong words there from, from NATO. Um, says it's going to be following the matter closely as you as you'd expect and just one final one um on the back of the madrid nato summit uh where we were reporting from for the last couple of days uh, it finished last night with president biden announcing another 800 million dollar package of military aid i mean that's 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 a lot of money but you know actually what what does it get you on the on today's market um for military kit but you know everything is good comes on the back of the of britain pledging one billion pounds so slightly more than uh about 1.1.1.2 billion dollars and france today president macron has said that 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 france will supply six more caesar howitzers and a significant number of armored vehicles so caesar howitzers are uh, 155 mil self-propelled artillery very 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 big very accurate um and um and they are they are the heavy artillery items that that um 
the, the class of which Ukraine had been calling for for a very long time. So, so there's still this this steady sort of rolling pledges, which is which is good to see and good to see that it come, comes on the back of the of the NATO summit. They didn't all just sort of head home and, and pat each other on the back, but that's good that that and hopefully that pressure will uh, will stay on for well, uh, we'll just stay there. Thanks, Tom. Um, Venetia, there are other things, of course, going on uh, in Ukraine and Europe and Russia. Would you talk us through them? Yeah, so there's a couple of good stories to to mention from Russia today. Um, One is that the Russian central bank has released a new 100 ruble patriotic banknote, but it's not going to be able to print them very easily. Um, Well, it'll be able to print them, but the ATMs won't be able to dispense them. Basically, the ATMs in Russia use a Western software that they can no longer update because of the sanctions. And so they can't change any of the notes that the ATMs are programmed to print and give out to people. Um, So it's just a fun, fun line within this whole ongoing sanctions story, one that we've been looking at and how much the sanctions are actually affecting Russia. The truth is not tons, but in terms of life for everyday life for ordinary Russians there are a lot of smaller changes that you're starting to see that speak to this sort of wider slide back to Soviet times so for example you know not being able to program their own ATMs but also struggling to find the parts for manufacturing cars or we've been hearing about dentists not being able to get their hands on one-use tools as much so having to sort of reuse things which is considered less hygienic it's all these sort of little details that speak to you know what how how different life is for ordinary russians today than how it was at the beginning of the year shopping malls obviously we've heard lots about how all the luxury brands have been have been leaving russia um Another good story is this basketball star, American basketball star, Brittany Griner. She's been detained by Russia for illegal cannabis possession. This case has been rumbling on for a little while. She appeared in court today. She's facing 10 years in prison if she's convicted. Russia has obviously said that her detention and ongoing detention is nothing to do with, you know, tensions with the US over the over the war. But a lot of other people are seeing the case as quite clearly linked and then one other small story worth mentioning is that America now has more chess grandmasters than Russia for the first time. Um, and that is because, not because of sanctions, but because a lot of Russian grandmasters have been switching their status to, to neutral, not quite defecting as such. Um, but Americans have also apparently been trying to buy up Russian grandmasters. So all of that means that the Russians are no longer top of the world for chess, which is interesting. Well, thank you very, very much, Venetia. Um, Francis, can I turn to you? We got a story today that Vladimir Putin has signed a decree to seize the rights to Shell's gas project in Russia. This is a move that could force the British energy giant to abandon its investment in the country. Um, I know you wanted to talk a little bit about the broader context of this. Uh, would you like to talk us through it? Yes. Well, thanks, David. And of course, energy has been one of the the renewed fronts in this war. And I think one of the advantages, of course, of us covering this on a daily basis in this podcast is we get to see and, and focus on some of these little incremental stages and developments and evolutions um, that, that that take place on some of these fronts that, that could otherwise be very easily missed. And there's been, as you say, this development within Russia around Shell, 
But I wanted to point to another development that's taken place in the last 48 hours or so, which is the European Union signing a deal with Egypt and Israel to boost gas gas exports to Europe. So obviously we're seeing here examples of this shift away from Russian energy supplies that until now Europe has been reliant on. And uh, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has described the agreement as, quote, a big step forward in the energy supply to Europe and the first step leading to a Mediterranean-wide agreement. And our understanding is that this will spur new investment in gas exploration infrastructure in Cyprus, Egypt, Greece and Israel um, in this sort of attempt to transform the eastern Mediterranean into a sort of energy powerhouse. So I just wanted to mention that because, as I say, it's not a particularly gripping story. It's not a, a headline grabber, but it is one that is it's these kind of small incremental steps of which profound changes are eventually made. And I think, um, you know, it will no doubt make very concerning reading in Moscow. Thanks, Francis. Can I just just on stories around Ukraine. Can I stay with you? We've had over this week, and we haven't talked about it yet, um, the visit of Indonesia's, uh, the, the head of state of Indonesia has visited Ukraine and Russia. Would you like to talk us through this and and your thoughts on it? Because I think it's it's rather interesting. Yes, well, one of the ongoing themes of, of what we've discussed on this podcast, but also since the war began, have been concerns about I suppose the, whether this will formulate an, into a new Cold War or some people are even calling it Cold War too. Part of the reason for that is listeners will recall the UN abstentions um, immediately after the war began w- uh, among numerous nations, um, many nuclear powered nations as well, um, India, Pakistan, but a lot of Pacific countries too and uh, many African nations. And the, the, the feeling was, is, or, or the concern was, should I say, that the, in a sense the West was losing the battle, um, that Russia and China and autocratic regimes had effectively helped to persuade uh, countries that, that they were you know, too reliant on Russia and China to upset them, and thus they would abstain in, in the votes condemning Russia's actions. But what makes this interesting about the Indonesia story is is it shows how actually far more complex things really are. Since the war began, Indonesia has condemned the invasion very early. Um, the president, as you say, has headed to Kiev. And it shows, I think, a pretty significant example of how, contrary to some commentators' angst on this, that actually the, the sort of global south is not as ambivalent and indifferent towards the war as perhaps we might have expected. And to reiterate a point that I've made on the podcast before, I think we're falling slightly into the trap into thinking that many of these nations I've just described that abstained in the votes or, or, or even voted with Russia are sort of lost causes that for whatever reason they have ideologically uh, chosen to align themselves with perhaps more autocratic style of government um, as opposed to sort of democratic Western values of which um, we're, of course, familiar and feel are at stake in in Ukraine. But that's actually far too much of a simplistic picture. This is really about interests over ideology. And in that sense, the West, if it 
realigns if it learns the lessons of this conflict and the drift that has taken place in the decades prior to this. And so actually, no, we are going to, like during the Cold War, invest in countries that um, would otherwise perhaps fall to um, Russia or China on, 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 on questions of investing and say, actually, no, you know, we, we're not going to, to let you slip into sort of the autocratic, autocratic grip, just like, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, people would comment on, say, not letting countries fall into communism through violent insurgencies and all of the like. This is, I think we're seeing examples of that taking place as we, as we speak right now. And as I say, I just wanted to sort of draw attention to this and say that, that there is still very much... Um, going on here that will have no doubt very long ramifications um, in the decades to come. Thanks for that, Francis. Dom, do you want to jump in and just plug the the the, the interview you did the other day? I think our listeners would, would like to know a little bit about it. Yeah, just on the back of, of what you were touching on there about wider concerns and um, in particular the sort of Indo-Pacific region. So at the, at the Madrid NATO summit, I got some time with a, a senior a, a Japanese official uh, who preferred for now to stay off the record or, or non-attributable, I should say. Uh, but we had a, had a good chat about the security dimension, Japan, and the uh, as they as they look at the, the framework uh, that they have with the Quad, which is Japan, India, Australia, the United States, uh, how they how they view security challenges through that, and 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 what they see coming down the tracks. And and he was very clear that, that unsurprisingly, the, the two big two big threats that they see at number one, North Korea, in particular, the ballistic missile program there, and secondly, China. And he was very, very clear about the um, the sort of land grab that China is doing in, in not only in the South China Sea, but over some of the uh, some of the islands. So uh, sorry, as in the South China Sea, to creating islands, just just forming um, islands off the off some of the existing low low lying reefs, but actually put, you know, uh, backfilling them. What's, what's the word I'm looking for when you when you uh, when you sort of blast sand into the air, you make your own islands and then you, you populate it and claim it as land and, and what have you. Um, and but also the 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 islands that, that there have been long running territorial disputes between between um, uh, Japan and, and China over so uh, and that's a lot of that's to do with mineral rights and and exclusive economic zones and what have you but it was just interesting to get a uh, to get a to, a perspective from from Japan and he made the point that the only alliance they have the only formal defense alliance they have is with the United States which came off the the back of the the structures after the Second World War however he did make the point that um, that Russia, sorry, that Japan and the United Kingdom used to have a defence alliance. He said in the the early part of um, of the last century, um, around uh, sort of nineteen oh two oh three something like this, um, we had a, a formal defence alliance and and, I, and made the point that was just before a massive war with Russia broke out in nineteen oh five. So uh, hopefully there's there's no sort of stronger historical parallel than that yet to come. But no, worth worth a listen. It was a quick quick grab, quick blast on the fringes of the the NATO uh, NATO uh, summit. But uh, good to get the perspective from Japan and uh, a contact that I'll follow up with uh, in future and um, and hopefully get get a better idea of how the the issues that we're talking about today m- most obviously brought to our attention through Ukraine, these, these, these fights for values and on autocracy and, and the, the, the rule of law and international norms and, and quite where the world stands on aggression and territorial, uh, territorial encroachment um, from over borders. It'd be interesting to see how these themes are, are received in, um, in the Asian theatre, uh, particularly with, with regard to uh, the rise of China, which, you know, is, is a particular sort of uh, interest for me. But yeah, more to come on that one. Worth a listen. Um, Francis Durnley, 
we talked about Henry Kissinger many months ago for remarks he made at Davos. Um, he's just given a big interview to the British magazine The Spectator that you've read, and you, you had some thoughts about his comments on Ukraine. Uh, and would you like to elucidate on that? What what's Kissinger been saying now, and why is it relevant? Can it help us understand anything? It may feel like months ago. I think it may have only been uh, in mid-May. <laughs> but uh, good lord, you're right. Good lord. <laughs> I know it feels like it feels like much longer. Um, but yes, yeah, so uh, Kissinger was commenting on on uh, at Davos about how he effectively agreed with Emmanuel Macron's line about concessions, and of course this great caused great consternation. And and we talked that about that at length on the podcast. Well, he's given an interview in the Spectator magazine. Uh, with the historian Andrew Roberts, uh, sort of, I suppose, expanding on his remarks there and and also talking about updates since. And um, there's just some interesting quotes that I wanted to to pull out of it and and perhaps we can sort of discuss them a little bit. So he sensed that his argument, Kissinger, is that, and I quote, Zelensky has now accepted the free people can keep Russia from achieving any military conquests. And if the battle line returns to the position where the war started, then the current aggression will have been visibly defeated. Ukraine will be reconstituted in the shape it was when the war started, the post-2014 battle line. It will be rearmed and closely connected to NATO, if not part of it. The remaining issues could be left to a negotiation. It would be a situation which is frozen for a while. But as we've seen in the reunification of Europe over a period of time, they can be achieved. And then the historian Andrew Roberts, who sometimes writes for us, I should say, comes back and says, but this means, Henry, that it doesn't really punish Putin for his aggression, does it? And so then this is Kissinger's response. Quite the contrary. If the war ends, as I sketched at Davos, I think it will be a substantial achievement for the Allies. NATO will have been strengthened by the addition of Finland and Sweden, creating the possibility of defence of the Baltic countries. Ukraine will have the largest conventional ground force in Europe linked to NATO or a member of it. Russia will have have been shown that the fear that has hung over Europe since World War II of a Russian army descending can be prevented by NATO conventional action. For the first time in recent history, Russia would have to face a need for coexistence with Europe as an entity, rather than America being the chief element in defending Europe with its nuclear forces. So some very interesting comments there. Um, I think many listeners to this podcast will be concerned to say the least about the idea that that, that this war would would end at the uh, post 2014 battle line and that being somehow articulated as a as a victory given that it was arguably uh, that encroachment by Putin that gave him the foothold that and that then enabled him to to launch the invasion of Ukraine in the first place but clearly he is seeing this in a very sort of realpolitik as opposed to a sort of um uh, I mean, I hesitate to say principle, more of a sort of a, having a, a, a clear set of um, of, of red lines uh, in mind, um, and and he would argue, as 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 I've just said, that, that that this is actually Zelensky's view that if they can return to the borders as they were at the the beginning of the conflict and to achieve those security um, guarantees, collective security guarantees that we discussed yesterday. With all of the developments that have been since with regard to NATO's expansion and the unification of the world, of, of, of parts of the world, I should say, um, around Ukraine, then that would be seen as a success. So uh, some things to, I think, to, 
to think on there and that speak to many of the themes that we've talked about on this podcast since the since the conflict started. Dom, can I come to you? Um, you've, I know you've wanted to talk about this idea of risk and what risk is and why we don't really understand what risk, how risk operates in a war zone. You've wanted to talk to, about this for a few days. And we've never really had time. Um, would you like the opportunity now? Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention this when there was a, when, when a chance to do so and it will give a background as to why we express on this on this podcast in particular but elsewhere of course express caution when we are discussing the, the war here despite the tactical successes that ukraine might might enjoy and of course there are setbacks as well but there, there are tactical successes and it'd be very easy to just jump on the whole tub thumping bandwagon and say oh russia's really silly and they can't do anything and uh, you know ukraine are going to win and and it's just worth as we do just just applying a little bit of cold water on the back of the neck and saying well hang on a second let, let's have a let's have a, a proper discussion about what's going on here and that brings us to the topics of threats and risk and i just wanted to outline a little bit about how the british military think about threat and risk because they are two completely different things interrelated of course but to, but very very separate things and i'll just touch on this for a couple of minutes so basically threat, the British Army, British military sees threat as being made up of three components. That's the capability that an adversary, let's see, let's say Russia here, because that's the obvious example. So the capability that that adversary has, the opportunity you give the adversary to, to hit you uh, and the intent, the intent that the adversary has to, to want to do something. And they obviously vary to greater or lesser degrees about capabilities is largely about counting numbers of, of fighters and, and equipment and what have you. Opportunity is slightly different. That That's how, in a tactical sense, how, how good you are at, at hiding, you know, your camouflage, your electronic signature, how good you are at um, providing a, a, a sort of, you know, being, being hidden from the battlefield thermally, electronically, et cetera, et cetera. But um, in, terms of, in terms of an existential war like this, there's very little you can do to hide your cities. I mean, they know people, we know where where Kiev and Kherson and, and the other cities are. So very little that, that um, President Zelensky would be able to do to lessen the opportunity of Russia hitting his cities. And intent, well, that, that kind of speaks for itself. The, the intent of the, of the adversary uh, on what, what you think their war aims are. And we've seen Putin with his Peter the Great speech. We know now that he wants to take over the entire country. So, so the intent in this situation, the, they started off, the capability was thought to be very big. The opportunity was thought to be very big because Ukraine is a big country with lots of targets and the intent is also very big. So that those three things together give you an idea of the threat. But of course, you get a vote as well. And, and what you can do to mitigate that threat, there are four things you can do. And they, they come out as transfer, treat, tolerate and terminate. So what you can do is you can just you can transfer that threat. And what this normally means is you just you just carve off a bit of real estate and, and make it someone else's responsibility. So instead of. Uh, a squadron of the Royal Scottish Union Guards, you give it to B squadron, you change the boundaries on a map. Or if it's in an, an allied environment, you, you say, right, OK, so the, the UK are not going to be responsible for that chunk of real estate. We're going to give it to the Italians or the French or whatever. So you just you just you just transfer that entire threat uh, somewhere else. Difficult for Ukraine to do here. Second one is is treat. So you, you nibble away at it. You do what you can to lessen that threat. Uh, but you're not you're not able to or you're not willing to spend everything you've got. Um, so you're able to only do uh, small incremental adjustments. Third one is tolerate, which is you just you just stand there and you take it. And, and I don't mean that as, a, as a, a sort of active choice. But in terms of when you're looking at ballistic missile attacks against your city, there's there's very little you can do. You can put it sort of point defense and the Iron Dome that we spoke about yesterday. But actually, in many respects, in terms of an existential war, a lot of it 
You've just got to tolerate that threat. And finally, terminate, which is you, you chuck everything at it. You chuck the kitchen sink, you chuck the whole lot to get rid of that threat. And what you do then, so if you, if you, if you, you uh, obviously you don't just plump for one of these scenarios. It, it's, a, it's a blend of these, depending on, on what you're talking about. If it's the, the, the threat from a, a tank uh, invasion or a threat from the, air def, uh, from, the, from the air or the threat of fifth columnists trying to subvert you from within, so on and so forth. So there's, it's, it's a complete blend, all these policies. But you end up with an idea about the threat and an idea about what you, you can do about it. And then the two of those sort of blended together in your head comes up with the risk. So you could, for example, you, you could decide to try and terminate the threat of the Russian Air Force by chucking everything you've got at, at blowing them out of the sky. And so you're going to um, you're going to absolutely negate that uh, that threat because you don't want to you don't want uh, a big risk from the air. And the way risk is then is then expressed is in terms of a graph with a probability and impact statement, basically. So probability of one along one side and impact up the other. And, and you get an idea there for, for where you should apportion your resource, both money, personnel, time, effort, um, international sport, et cetera, et cetera. So, for example, the nuclear power stations here in uh, the United Kingdom, they are protected. Um, I, I, I was given the stat once. I've forgotten it. But it's, it's, it's a, a many, many times of, of uh, order of magnitude greater than any earthquake that's ever been uh, in the United Kingdom. But, of course... That's because the the um, the impact of a meltdown in a nuclear power station is colossal. So even though the probability of an earthquake um, impacting a nuclear power station is very very small, the impact is so high that Britain chooses to chuck a load of money at it. Uh, and so the the you, you could argue that we've taken out a, a, a you know far greater insurance policy than we than we might necessarily want. But like I say, the probability is small, but the impact is enormous. Uh, and that was just a yeah. It's, Simple example there about nuclear power stations, but but let's have a look at what how Ukraine might be thinking about this in the fight with Russia. So, as I say, the threat is made up of capability that Russia has, the opportunity that's, that's uh, that it can enjoy, and the intent to do something. So, all that Ukraine can erode really is the capability, because as I say, you can't hide a country, you can't move a country, you can't camouflage a country. So the the opportunity for Russia to strike Ukraine is always going to be there and it's always going to be high. And the intent, as I said, is, is high. So all that Ukraine can really do is erode the capability. Now, what can Ukraine do about it? It can't transfer it because it's not, an, not in an allied scenario. It can't just carve off a whole area and say, right, off you go, Bulgaria. You go and treat that little bit over there in the US. You can do this bit here. So it can't uh, transfer it. It, it can't. It, it's struggling to terminate it. I'll come back to that in a moment. So all it can do is is treat it, which is defend itself, hang on in there, try and work out the best place to put its limited uh, men and material resources, um, its fighters, uh, and and tolerate to a certain degree. You know, take the pain, do what it can to harden the 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 um, locations, get the civilian population out of the way, come up with alternative sources of of um, transportation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what they're trying to do is move that tolerate up to terminate and if they can nibble away at some of the uh, some of the threats and, and turn them from tolerating to terminate then they might be getting somewhere and it's all a bit clunky and wonky but but think about the example of snake island so for a number of months now ukraine were um tolerating to a certain degree and and treating that that risk there the risk posed by russia holding snake island in the northwest of the black sea They've now gone for it big style, as we saw over the last few days. And whilst I don't think the story is over there by any stretch of the imagination yet, at the moment, it looks like they have 
they've got the foothold. And so they have terminated the threat from uh, Russia of holding Snake Island. Now, against all of this, as I say, you, you think about risk in terms of probability and impact. For Ukraine, this is existential. So the probability of Russia wanting to continue to the attack is extremely high and the impact is extremely high because it, it is literally existential. So this is a this is a risk that, that it simply has to address and it cannot move away from at the moment until there's any kind of uh, lowering of that uh, opportunity, which is very hard to do, or intent from Russia. So all that Ukraine can do at the moment is nibble away at the capability and then eventually the, you would you hope that the intent from your from your adversary, war is a clash of wills, let's not forget, you hope that the intent from your adversary is lessened to a certain degree that they either just go home or they sue for peace or you, you then go through the whole sort of um, negotiating process and uh, however long that, that lasts. But you know, I, it's a little bit clunky to think about it in, the, in these terms, but it just gives you an idea that, that not everything is a, is a high risk. And when we talk about risk, we need to be thinking about, well, what's the probability and what's the impact? Because some risks like, um, is my bus going to be late for work this morning? It's like, yeah, don't don't really care. You know, I mean, as as I've just demonstrated, what about I go to work and I daydream for quite a lot of the time. So, you know, being a little bit late for work isn't isn't the end of the world. However, nuclear power station on the Suffolk coast going up in flames um, is a is a massive risk. So you, you do you do treat that one. So the you know, low probability, but high impact. So in terms of the war, I just just ask people to think about the different components of what of what a war is and the different um, threats that they pose. And therefore, after the mitigation measures that you can apply, what risks are, are, are then remain for Ukraine to do something about? So a little bit, a little bit, a little bit wonky. However, that is, um, you, as you'd hope, the military do plan for these things rather than just putting a wet finger in the air and sort of taking a guess of where they should apportion money and resource. This is a a sort of pseudo academic way of thinking about the issues of threat and risk and what you can and can't do um, and what you can and can't do at certain uh, certain uh, times, you know, as as war moves on and, and the war changes shape. And as we're seeing the sort of heavy weapons flowing in from the West for Ukraine, it changes a lot of these dynamics. But just a quick a quick sort of skip through there about how to think about um, threat and risk. Well, thank you very much, Dom. I think you redeemed yourself there. That was absolutely fascinating. I'd like to hear actually from from our listeners with any military background or our Ukrainian listeners, if that does that help you understand some of the tactics and the strategy from the Ukrainian side or, or not? Is 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 there potentially a better way of thinking of it? So do get in touch on that. Um, because we have Dom's interview with the senior Japanese official in today's podcast, I think really our time is up here. So Dom and Francis, can I just ask, ask for your final thoughts? We obviously don't chat over the weekend. We'll come back on Monday. So what should our listeners be thinking of and looking to in the next 48 hours? Well, for me, I think it's going to be the, the Lysychansk pocket. I think that town is going to fall to Russia, uh, partly because it will be. I think it will be ceded by Ukraine. They've done the job there. They've, they've soaked up a lot more equipment and personnel from Russia. So I think they will see that town. Um, and then we get to see what Russia wants. Uh, after being able to claim the Luhansk Oblast, does it keep going? I don't think it's capable of keeping going right now. So I think we'll see what it what it wants. However, before there's obvious evidence of, of it having made its mind up of, of what it wants, I think we will continue to see a lot more of these attacks, just these random, spiteful um, speculative attacks from the air on civilian infrastructure. So I think it is going to be a, a bit of a lull now after Lysychansk um, falls. 
but no less painful for Ukraine. Thank you very much, Dom Nichols. Francis Turnley, would you like the final words? I would just echo what Dom said there uh, on, on which parts of the battlefield to follow. And I think also we can expect next week to perhaps see some further announcements in light of the NATO summit and no doubt some of the relationships that were fostered there between counterparts in various different governments will have an impact in some of the discussions I cited earlier on, um, particularly around energy and, uh, and the like. So I think we can certainly expect to see some, some, some interesting developments um, in the coming days. And so people should, should definitely tune in next week. Understanding the interests, priorities and the thinking of countries, large and small, has been a large part of this podcast. We've heard the view from the US, from China, from Kazakhstan, but there's another major power we've yet to hear from. It lies on the other side of Russia from Ukraine, but it's taking a keen interest in the conflict. Japan. At the NATO summit in Madrid this week, Dom Nichols caught up with a senior Japanese official to understand the view from Tokyo. This is their conversation. What is your interest here in the NATO summit? Well, first and foremost, um, we are invited to uh, come here uh, from the NATO headquarters. And uh, we have been uh, enjoying a very cordial relationship with NATO over the past decade. Uh, we forged this uh, partnership agreement, IPCP, in 2014. And ever since, I, we believe that, uh, that the relationship between Japan and NATO have been uh, very, very good. But um, at the moment, um, well, NATO has also asked us to come up with our opinion on the security concern in East Asia, uh, or Asia as a whole, or Indo-Pacific, because NATO is going to revise. It's going to come up with this new uh, strategy concept. There has been, um, well, expression of intention from NATO that... Uh, you wish to uh, touch upon the uh, security issues outside the Atlantic region. So in this regard, we have registered our, let's say, security concerns in East Asia, and we are looking forward to seeing what is going to be announced. And what are your security concerns in East Asia, and, and what do you think NATO can do to help? It is no secret that we have very tough neighbors. Uh, we have North Korea. They have already launched 15 tests of ballistic missiles only this year. Uh, and they have conducted a nuclear weapon test in the past. And they claim themselves as uh, a nuclear power. That's one. And another is China. China has been modernizing their nuclear arsenal and they are uh, nuclear weapon state under the NPT. And those, Russia is Russia. I don't need to explain any further. So these are the, um, the issues. And also, we also have the Chinese Coast Guard vessels intruding into Japanese territorial waters, and they claim our islands, called the Senkaku Islands, as theirs, uh, which we find it preposterous because they started claiming about this island uh, that's theirs since 1970s after they discovered that they have an oil uh, field under the sea. So, all in all, th these are our security concerns. And if I may touch upon Taiwan, the security of the Taiwan Straits is very important to us because uh, we are only 110 kilometers apart 
in the nearest point. That is the uh, distance between London and Dover. So you cannot be totally indifferent about the security of the Taiwan Straits, and we would like to see that uh, these issues will be resolved in a peaceful manner. And, and would you actively look for more military power, hard power, so naval power in the Taiwan Straits and, and uh, air force? That I mean, UK and Japan have done some joint land exercises in recent years. Would you like to see actually more of that? joint exercising and more physical presence in the area? Well, that goes beyond uh, our, you know, uh, cooperation with NATO. Uh, now we are talking about uh, cooperation with individual countries, who, which are members of the NATO, which I think is very important. We were very much encouraged to see your um, aircraft carrier uh, strike group led by uh, Queen Elizabeth coming to Japan last year. Uh, and we, yes, we would like to see more uh, of such kind of instances in the region. And I would like, we would like to see, uh, you know, returning uh, that kind of uh, gesture, vice versa. And how do you think China sees your presence here, starters, and your increasing desire to, to cooperate with NATO and yeah. have great physical presence mm. in the near? Well, needless to say, I'm a spokesperson for the Japanese government, so I don't really want to sort of speculate what kind of uh, uh, feelings or what kind of announcements they are going to make vis-à-vis -vis our presence here. But you see, um, our concern is quite real, and saying what needs to be said is the most important thing in diplomacy. So uh, I think we're, you know, doing what needs to be done. So what needs to be said to China today? Well, I'm, we're, we're, we have been saying quite repeatedly, uh, stop intruding uh, the Japanese territorial waters and the Chinese uh, Coast Guard vessels, their weapons are military grade. They are painted in white, but uh, in reality, it is de facto grey. They came up with a new law which gives them uh, much more liberty in uh, their ROE, rules of engagement. So uh, th these are the things that uh, uh, we are witnessing and we are calling for uh, China to uh, come up with more responsible uh, behavior. What would be the correct parallels to take from the Ukraine crisis, the lead up to and the, any lessons we can see mm -hmm. in its early stage in the war? Yes to the situation in your neighborhood? Well, um, if I may be more general, not just our neighborhood, but in a sort of global spectrum, we shouldn't let any country elicit the wrong message on this issue. Because if some country can get away with committing this atrocious act, uh, you know, some countries creating loopholes for economic sanctions, and you know, that, that means uh, this one country, namely Russia, can get away with uh, what uh, they have done. This is a, a terrible message we are communicating to the world. We should not let this happen. So this is why uh, in the Alma summit we agreed to this very strong sanctions. This is um, what we call uh, oil price cap. We are this is the, the G7 summit. G7 summit. Yeah. And if you study carefully, um, we are putting a cap on the oil price uh, in terms of Russian oil transaction. And what kind of mechanism will be in place is another matter. We, will, we are going to discuss that further among the G7. But the idea is that uh, we are going to target the Russian oil revenue whilst uh, maintaining the stability of the oil market. And the, the Quad, how effective is that as a security 
a body and would you like to see it expanded in terms of either scope or numbers? Well, uh, let me remind you that Quad started off as a, a humanitarian assistance and disaster relief framework after uh, the 2004 Bandalache earthquake and tsunami. So in this regard, you know, we uh, see this uh, Quad has got more of a sort of economic framework. Security is also uh, on the horizon, of course, but um, we see so many area of cooperation, areas of cooperation uh, in the field, for example, in the vaccination cooperation or uh, uh, space, cyber. So those are the issues which has got the security uh, aspect too. But at the same time, uh, we don't frame the Quad framework as you know, a security alliance. So where do you derive your, your security from? If it, where, what alliances or bodies do you primarily lean to? Or is that what you're, what you're now looking at? Oh, well, um, yes, uh, we have, I mean, Japan has got only one ally, and that is the United States of America. Uh, we forged this uh, uh, relationship with the United States after the war, and the uh, United States became uh, a superpower, and we became our ally uh, since 1952. So um, this is where we are, and, uh, and they are the ones who are providing us with extended deterrence, including their uh, nuclear deterrence. And we have our defense capability, as you know. We have self-defense forces, maritime, ground, and air. But uh, I think the interoperability between the U.S. forces and the Japanese self-defense forces uh, is of absolute importance. And of course, our Prime Minister, Mr. Kishida, has announced that he will fundamentally strengthen our defense capability in the next five years. So we are going to come up with more robust defense capability and more budget will be requested to the Diet. What do those words mean, Fun fundamental change your defense? Yeah, fundamentally increase, robust. sorry, fundamentally increase so, so, the so defense capability of Japan. Budget. More yes, more budget. More, uh, more but allies? Hmm? More allies? No, well, uh, well, we, we at the moment we are satisfied and happy with the Japan-U.S. Security Alliance, and we don't envisage any more addition of our allies. But we are seeing, you know, uh, more partnership uh, being strengthened. For example, with the, with the United Kingdom, uh, we have come up with a reciprocal access agreement, uh, which was uh, uh, agreed in principle in in May when Prime Minister Kishida visited uh, uh, Boris Johnson. Uh, so we are seeing more of such instances uh, with other countries such as uh, Australia. And you have a frigate alongside HMS Belfast today, arrived, mm -hmm. arrived last week. Yes. Uh, so as I said, you know, uh, this kind of um, uh, defense cooperation, it takes two sides to uh, reciprocate with each other. We, you know, we feel honored to uh, have our very close contacts with UK Defence Corps. Uh, I say this because we were allies 120 years ago. We, it was Japan. Just before war with Russia. Exactly. <laughs> so the history seems to repeat itself, doesn't it? Um, yes, so Japan uh, and Britain came up with this Anglo-Japanese alliance of 2002. And Japan was the, your first ally you were uh, sort of kind of uh, enjoying um, a state of isolation 
in a way, uh, splendid isolation, so to speak. But uh, uh, you know, seeing that the Russians are at the moment, you know, Imperial Russia's uh, you know, uh, military activity elsewhere, Great Britain came up with this uh, idea of forging an alliance with Japan, and we were really honoured. And finally, diplomats, in my limited experience, are always glass half full types of characters. The diplomat's glass normally being something light and fizzy, uh, generally. Are you glass half full on the state of Korea, North Korea, at the moment? There have been a lot of missile tests, a lot of nuclear tests. Should we look with, with hope and optimism at that situation, or is it a, a more gloomy future? Hmm. Well, there are so many ways to answer that question. Um, it is North Korea that should be held responsible for its actions. And this, these actions are quite appalling. Their actions are quite appalling. Uh, they committed, as I said, 15 times of uh, uh, missile tests, and uh, many of them were ballistic missiles, and some uh, flew into uh, Japan's exclusive economic zone, waters. Uh, and this is quite a dangerous act which could uh, uh, jeopardize uh, the passing of the vessels nearby Japan. So we have been, um, you know, lodging a very strong protest to North Korea by uh, our embassy in Beijing. I, I don't want to speculate what is going to happen from now on, but uh, in this kind of critical situation, in time of crisis, what is most important is the unity of the like-minded nations, like-minded states such as G7, NATO. Uh, so um, any um, wrongdoing or unilateral attempts to change the status quo must be met with voice of protest coming from like-minded nations, and such as United Kingdom or Japan. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Gemma Farrell.